Please remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from Mark chapter 6. Pay careful attention to the gospel of God. Now King Herod heard of him, that is Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately, she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both which they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. But the multitudes saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came to gather to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him, and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country villages and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. 
And he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, in hundreds, and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we are your sheep and the people of your pasture. And we are grateful for your son, King Jesus. We pray that as we read your word, you would make us more like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, it's been a while, but if you'll recall, the last time that we were in the book of Mark, we were looking at Jesus' baptism. And we noted that Mark, perhaps more than any other gospel writer, reveals Jesus to us as a king, the divine king of all nations. Christ's miracle, recorded here in Mark 6, the feeding of the 5,000, is one of the only miracles that's in all four gospel accounts, and probably one of the Lord's best-known miracles, even to those outside of the faith. It certainly was one of his most popular works with the people of his time. John records for us that after Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish, that the crowds came and tried to make him a king by force. But Jesus would not allow them to do it. Jesus was to be more than a political king for Israel only. The nature of his kingdom was different. It extended to all nations, and it was to be built on his sacrifice for sin. But even if the crowds misunderstood the nature of Jesus' kingdom, they at least knew that this miracle does reveal Jesus to us as a king, the kind of king all of us would want, a king that rules through service. Mark's account shows us of the nature of Jesus' kingdom by placing his miracle, his feast, side by side with another king and another feast, that of King Herod. One king and one feast is in a palace, and the other is in the wilderness. One has sumptuous fare, and the other simple, just bread and fish. One has a select guest list, and the other is attended by longing multitudes. In one, the hosts are idle, and in the other, the hosts are working tirelessly. One king is self-promoting, and the other is self-giving. In one, God's saints are served as food, and in the other, his saints are truly fed. Mark chapter 6 places Jesus and Herod side by side, but ultimately, the kings, in contrast, are Christ and sin. Four separate times in the narrative we just read, Herod is called King Herod, or the king. But if there's anything that's obvious about Herod, it's that he is ruled. 
He's ruled by his lusts and his appetites, by vanity and fear and by pride. He's a picture of the tragic and grotesque consequences of a man who has authority but lacks freedom. Herod sits on a throne and issues commands, but he is a slave, a slave to sin. Proverbs 19.10 tells us that it's not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, and even worse, for a slave to rule over princes. Herod's family typifies this proverb, and his kingdom shows us a kingdom and a family ruled and ruined by sin. In contrast, Jesus is presented as a true shepherd king, compassionate, self-giving. Even in the most austere of circumstances in the wilderness, he provides for his flock spiritually and physically. And he teaches his disciples, he teaches us how to rule through service. Since the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, We've all followed in their way and in the way of Herod to one extent or another, grasping for power and authority in order to fulfill our own desires. Mark, though, invites us out into the desert, the place of repentance and desolation, to find King Jesus and to submit to him and to be fed by him so we may learn from him how to lay down our lives for others. This is Mark chapter 6, and we want to consider the reign of sin and Herod and the reign and service of Jesus. With that, let's look first at verses 14 through 29 and consider the reign of sin in the house of Herod. The occasion for Herod's feast is his birthday celebration, likely at his palace in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. He's surrounded by political officials and leading men, as it says in verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. No doubt there is rich food and wine in abundance. And as part of the festivities, the daughter of his new wife, Herodias, is summoned or offers to dance for the crowd. Verse 22. When Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. Here Herod is having a great time showing off his glory and his riches, his family, and his foe, generosity. But the day takes a horrific turn when the girl returns quickly to the room in verse 24. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. What James the brother of our Lord, would write years later, was coming true in Herod's life then. James 1.14 says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts and enticed. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, 
when it is full grown, brings forth death. You see, Herod was a man dominated by his lusts and his appetites. Look at verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. We're not told if his desire for Philip's wife was political, if it increased his power or his territory, or if it was simple lust, or more likely a combination of both. But the fact that Herod takes her and marries her, his opulent feast and his sensual entertainment, show us that Herod was a man accustomed to using his power to gratify his own appetites. What had started as unchecked desire soon gave rise to other sins, like imprisoning John the Baptist. And when given the opportunity, those sins gave rise to death. First, John's, and then later, Herod's. Herod is later struck down in the narrative for his sin of pride by the Lord directly. And in this, we can see the appalling sickening nature of sin and the appalling nature of the girl's grisly request that John's head be brought on a serving tray during dinner. And yet that is a fitting symbol for sin because if there is anything that Herod and Herodias and his guests are doing, it is indulging their appetites. Sin always presses forward to death, which is why we who belong to Christ are constantly exhorted to mortify our own lusts. Herod is a warning to all of us to take seriously the fight against sin. And so the question must be asked, do you take seriously the fight against sin in your own life? Are you putting to death even those desires within your heart that are contrary to the word of God and his ways. Just like in Herod's life, in all of our lives, those unmortified and ungodly desires that we allow to work in our lives will constantly march forward to death and destruction, either in our own lives or in the lives of the people around us. The request for John's head, though, did not come from Herodias' daughter, but from Herodias herself. Verses 18 and 19 tell us why. Look there. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. When your brothers and sisters who are faithful are like John, and they point out sin in your life, or if the word comes from the pulpit or your Bible study leader or your spouse, how do you respond? Do you respond like Herodias? Is your wrath stirred? Are you defensive? Do you get angry? I'm not asking if you start plotting to kill that person, but does the anger begin to stir in your heart? Do you immediately deny the charge or do you consider what they have to say? We need to learn to consider what others have to say because um, just like Herodias, 
when John's head arrived to her that day, she learned a lesson. And that's that pouring out our wrath on other people will not erase the sting of rebuke. When the fit is thrown or the wall is punched or the argument is had, the rebuke will remain unscathed. It is for us to consider. The only wrath that is effective against sin is the wrath of God poured out on your sins in Christ on the cross. And if you know that, if you believe that, if you belong to Jesus, you have the forgiveness of all of your sins that anyone might ever point out to you. And we do not have to be defensive. We can consider what other other people say, knowing that Jesus has taken the wrath for our sin. 1 John 1, 7 through 9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's all unrighteousness. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter if the sin is a big and public scandal like the imprisoning of John the Baptist. It doesn't matter if it's a secret sin. It doesn't matter if it's a weakness. Whatever our brothers and sisters are pointing out to us in faithfulness, we can consider knowing that Jesus has taken the wrath for our sin. We can be forgiven. Outside of Christ, we're left with nothing but the frustrating attempts at relieving our guilt by pouring out our wrath on one another. In your own home, in your own life, when sin is noticed, how do you deal with it? Is it under the blood of Christ in confession and forgiveness? Or is it in anger and wrath, counter-accusing and arguing? Herod is undone ultimately by his pride and vanity, by his inability to humble himself and admit fault. Look with me at verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And when he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Herod's lusts had given way to his sins, and the girl's request brought everything in Herod's life up to that point into a public crisis point, where the only way out for Herod was humility. The only way out for Herod was to admit the foolishness of his oath, the foolishness of the situation, the unrighteousness of imprisoning John, and he couldn't do it. Herod was a slave to pride. Herod valued his reputation more than he valued righteousness. Pride is when you value your standing before others than putting things right with others. What do your actions say that you value? If you're harsh with your wife in front of the kids, can you apologize in front of your family. If you blow your cool in front of other people, can you admit it and ask for forgiveness? Or is that just the way things are? We just let things blow over. If you've been foolish by Herod and everyone can see it, do you have the ability to laugh at yourself or do you 
double down. If your family or relationships and friendships are falling apart, there's a very good chance that your pride is keeping you from doing the work that needs to be done to clean it up, which is simple admission of sin, forgiveness under the blood of Jesus, and working to put things right. Sin will saddle you with guilt and let you know that what you're doing is wrong. It will even let you believe that God's ways are good and better, but this is nothing more than worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow will make you feel bad for a time, but it won't let you be humble in front of others or admit a mistake. For that, we need the Spirit of God to work in our hearts. Verses 14 through 29 is a sad picture of a life and a family and a kingdom that is under the reign of sin. If this characterizes you, you need to ask yourself, have you truly submitted to Christ and found peace and forgiveness through his death on the cross and through his resurrection? His kingdom, his peace, his rule is open to anyone who will humble themselves and submit to him. Let's look at his reign next. Look at verses 30 through 44 at the reign of Christ and his feast. In contrast to Herod and his guests sitting idle in the palace, Jesus and his disciples have been out working, preaching, and teaching, and healing. Jesus had just sent his disciples out earlier in Mark 6 on a ministry tour. Verse 30, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. The disciples returned from their preaching tour and no doubt were looking forward to the rest that Jesus had called them to. This was Jesus' pattern himself. Jesus would spend time doing ministry with the multitudes and the crowds and preaching and healing, and then he would spend time resting and with his Father in prayer. The text tells us that the place was so mobbed with people, they did not even have time to take a meal. And so they depart in a boat to get away and to get their rest, but it was not to be had. Verse 33, the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. So the disciples are tired and hungry, and they've left a shore that's crowded with people coming and going, and then the shore that they arrive on looks exactly like the one they left. It's full of expectant faces. If you were in their shoes, how would you respond? Finally, a time to rest, and here is everyone. More importantly, how does Jesus respond? Verse 34, Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. I'm indebted to a number of commentators who pointed out the connections between Mark 6 and the 23rd Psalm, which is why we read and prayed Psalm 23 
together. When you start looking um, at all of these connections, beginning here with Jesus, seeing the people as a sheep, as sheep without a shepherd, it's really astounding how many connections there are. And it's beyond doubt that Mark is making this reference in uh, specifically. For example, Mark points out that the grass in the desert that he sets the crowds down on is green in verse 39, just like in Psalm 23. In the, follow, the narrative following the feeding of the multitudes, Jesus stills the waters. And on the preaching tour, the apostles are allowed only to take staves or rods, and they anoint heads with oil. And of course, we're about to see Jesus set a table in the region of Herod, an enemy, and the beheading of John casts the shadow of death over this whole narrative. And if we took time, there are other images from the 23rd Psalm that we could see. Most importantly, though, the point that Mark is making in making all of these connections is that Jesus is the Lord himself. He is our shepherd, teaching his people, leading them in paths of righteousness for his namesake, fulfilling Psalm 23 and other Old Testament prophecies like Ezekiel 34 or Numbers 27. Numbers 27, 16 and 17 says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. In the Bible, shepherds are kings and rulers. We think of Moses who learned how to lead a nation by leading his father-in-law's flocks, or David who was a shepherd before he became king. Jesus is the Lord himself, the true shepherd king, the divine king for all nations. Never forget that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still has compassion on lost, weary, or expectant souls. So be like the crowds and seek him. Run to the places where you know that he may be found. Seek him in his word and in worship, in the preaching and prayer and the supper. Cast your cares on him and confess your needs for him, and you will find rest for your soul. Under Herod, under the rule of sin, there was a scene of rest, there was a feast, but everyone was racked with guilt and wrath. Jesus is the true king of peace, and if you come to him, no matter the circumstances, in the desert, in the wilderness, under the difficult circumstances of life, he will guide you into true peace. When the hour was getting late, the disciples wanted their promised rest. That's why they got in the boat in the first place. They had seen enough of the Lord's compassion to at least phrase their request correctly. Look at verse 35. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. The crowds, Jesus, they have nothing to eat. (laughs) We've just come back from our preaching tour and we don't have time for dinner, but man, we're concerned about the crowds. (laughs) Jesus answered, 
and said to them, you give them something to eat. Jesus tests the disciples here. He tests us. And he teaches us about the true nature of his kingdom and how to rule through service. They said to Jesus, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? Okay, Jesus, we'll back up our semi-full of bread here that we've taken with us on the boat and feed everybody. How do you want us to get food for all these people? Jesus answers them in verse 38. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. And he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in ranks and hundreds and fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed, broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. In taking the bread and blessing it and breaking it and distributing it to the disciples, Jesus nearly exactly foreshadows the Last Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper that he will do later in Mark, saying, take and eat, this is my body. In John's Gospel, the Lord follows up this miracle, this feeding of the multitude, by specifically teaching that the bread that he was giving out to the crowds was himself. He says that he is the bread of life. Even if they didn't understand it at the time, Jesus was showing his disciples that his kingdom is founded on the giving of his own body on the cross for our sin and the giving of himself to hungry souls. Jesus still gives himself to his people. Jesus still gives himself to us by teaching us his word and by feeding us in the supper. Interestingly, in Mark 6, unlike the Lord's Supper, wine is not distributed, but with the bread is fish. Why does, why does Mark include that fish are in the meal? Well, fish were a symbol of the Gentile nations. So Jesus did not just give his life for the Jews, but Jesus gives his life for the world. He rules and reigns over all nations. Jesus is the divine king, the true shepherd for all people. I want to conclude with two thoughts about how Mark 6 should affect your life going forward. One is that we all, that you really do need to consider if your life is under the dominion of sin or of Christ. How is your life characterized? Is your life characterized by being dominated by your lusts? Are you wrathful? Are you too proud to admit fault? There are only two possible ways in this world that God has made for persons to interact. They may follow the example of the Lord Jesus in self-giving and say, my life for yours. Or they may walk in the way of Herod consuming others, saying, your life for mine. Or worse, your life for my pride, your life for my vanity, your life for 
the group's life for me. Those are the only two possible options. And for sinners, the former way is closed to us and impossible unless the free grace of God intervenes in our lives. But when it does intervene, we can truly say, even if it's imperfectly, my life for yours. We can lay down our lives for one another. Paul's exhortation to the Galatians is appropriate for all of us. For you, brethren, have been called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you are consumed by one another. The final thing is that this passage really does teach us something about dealing with ministry beyond the utter frozen limits of human ability. Although Jesus has the power to do mighty deeds, he doesn't always exercise them in order to lighten the load for his followers. The disciples had to work to feed the 5,000. In breaking the bread, Jesus shows us that he gives himself for the life of the world, but don't forget that as Paul would teach us later that we are the loaf. And we are Christ's body. Jesus gave himself to the crowds through the disciples. And Jesus gives himself to the world through us. He gives us the privilege of participating with him, especially when we're tired and hungry and the task seems impossible. Any and everything that Jesus has called you to do or has called us to do as a congregation, is impossible without the power of God. The works that Jesus calls us to require faith, and they require obedience. Imagine being the disciples who gave Jesus the loaves and then received them back broken from him. When they turn back around to the crowds, the loaves haven't changed yet. They're, just, they're holding something where the math just doesn't work out. And whatever God has called you to do, the math isn't always going to work out. It could be um, in your business or the ministries here at the church or in your studies. Um, But what God has called us to do is to work with him. So learn from the disciples and take what you do have, whether it's your business or your studies or your home or your family or your very self, and give it to the Lord. He will bless it, and then he will break it. And when it is submitted and blessed in the way that he wants it, he'll put it back in your hands, and you will be astounded at how it multiplies. We will be giving Christ and ourselves and our resources for the life of the world, and Jesus will be teaching us how to extend his kingdom through service. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd, that you lay down your life for your sheep. You have provided all that we need for life and godliness, and you give us the opportunity to present you to the world. We pray that you would bless us, break us, that you would multiply our efforts in the world, that everyone would come to know and love and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.